Welcome back to Catastrophe, an anchor station for the Haglets and any other child who has trouble falling asleep at night. Now, straight from the small screen or computer to a shelf near you, a bookshelf near you, is Grumpy Cat. The little grumpy cat that wouldn't. And for the mums and dads out there, Little Golden Book. Grumpy Cat sold out to the Little Golden Book. Once there was a little cat. She was a cute cat. She was furry. And she was grumpy. Grumpy Cat didn't like anything. Grumpy Cat went outside. She wanted to be alone. But soon a happy butterfly started talking to her. Grumpy Cat didn't know the butterfly's name. She didn't care. Hi, Grumpy Cat, the butterfly said. You know what's great about the outdoors? Nothing, Grumpy Cat said. Grumpy Cat wanted the happy butterfly to go away, but it didn't. Instead, a cheerful ladybug joined them. Good morning, Grumpy Cat, the ladybug said. There's no such thing, Grumpy Cat said. Grumpy Cat, would you like to play? The butterfly asked. Grumpy Cat wouldn't. Come on, it'll be fun, the ladybug said. I had fun once, Grumpy Cat said. said. It was awful. A joyful bird joined in. Grumpy Cat was surrounded by happy animals. Grumpy Cat, there must be something fun you would like to do, the bird said. I know, would you like to race? Would Grumpy Cat? Ready, set, no, Grumpy Cat wouldn't. The happy animals all raced away. Grumpy Cat was alone. Good. You may have guessed by my children's names, Tycho and Orion, named after an astronomer and a constellation, uh, that we are science fans in our house and we are also mad keen space nuts. That is part of the reason, but not the whole reason, why I bought this next story for my daughter. I bought this next story because we need to support uh, female role models in science and here is one of the greats the story of one of the greats now uh, please excuse me for fumbles I've only read this story once before and it's a bit of a big one so going back six times and redoing it's probably going to do my head in uh, please also understand that this will be in potentially several parts because we have quite a large book without further ado Ada Byron Lovelace and the Thinking Machine by Laurie Walmark and illustrated by April Chu. Ada was born into a world of poetry, but numbers, not words, captured her imagination. Her mother, Lady Byron, had a passion for geometry. In fact, her nickname was the Princess of Parallelograms. But her famous father dominated the household. Beloved for his romantic poems, Lord Byron was a celebrity throughout the world. Unfortunately, Lord Byron was also notorious for his scandalous behaviour. So scandalous that Lady Byron bundled up her new baby and fled to London to her parents' home over a hundred miles away. 
Ada never saw her father again. Now Ada could only know her father through his books, and with her mother often travelling, Ada was lonely. Her journals, filled with pages of inventions and equations, kept her company. The best part was when her sketches flew off the page and became real. Ada's latest invention was a flying machine. She had built a set of real wings, but could they actually fly? First, Ada needed to compute the wing's power. She broke the problem into steps. Surface area and weight, wind speed and angles, multiplying and dividing over and over again. Ada loved numbers, but these calculations seemed endless. Wasn't there an easier way? Writing for so long made her fingers hurt. She wiggled them and returned to her numbers. 15 times 12 equals 180. And so it went. The sky darkened and the thunder crashed. Rain pounded on the roof and pelted through the open window. Ada jumped up to latch the shutters. The curtains flapped in and out like sails billowing in the wind. Sails! Sails were like wings! Ada could use this wind to do an experiment for her flying machine. She grabbed her journal and charged out into the hurling storm howling storm into the howling storm. Again and again Ada launched her model sailboat across the pond. Each time she adjusted the sails and studied the effect on the little boat's speed. The storm of numbers and calculation sorry, a storm of numbers and calculations whirled in her mind and spilled into the pages. Ada Byron Lovelace and the Thinking Machine Part Two Night fell. Ada returned home, muddy, dripping, wet, and triumphant. When Nanny saw Ada, she scolded her for being out in such dreadful weather. She sniffed that she didn't care what Lady Byron thought. Girls should not waste their time with math and science and experiments and other such nonsense. But to Ada, it wasn't nonsense at all. Numbers were her friends. After dinner, she sprawled on the floor with her puzzle book. Her head was hot and achy. The numbers squirmed on the paper, and her eyes felt as if they were filled with sand from the pond. By morning, Ada had a high fever. Nanny didn't scold now. She was worried. She cabled Mama to come home right away. Ada had the measles. Through many long days and nights, Mama read Ada her favorite books. The fever finally broke but the measles left her paralyzed and blind. To keep Ada's mind sharp, Mama quizzed her on math problems. How much was 82 minus 25? 18 times 47? 96 divided by 13? Numbers chased each other around Ada's head. Mama posed Eva ever harder problems, and Ada solved them all. Problems like how long does it take to sorry problems like how long does it take to travel to London? By carriage it was an overnight journey, but Ada's flying machine could go much faster than a carriage. If Ada flew, she'd be able to reach London in only a few hours, just in time for tea. 
Ada's numbers kept her company. 15 times 12 was still 180 and always would be, whether Ada could see or not. Over the next few weeks, her eyes got better, but it was three long years before she could put away her crutches. The girl who wanted to fly could not even walk. But Ada still had her numbers, numbers that mattered to her more than ever. Mama recognised her daughter's passion. She hired tutors so Ada could learn math at an even higher level. Ada's favourite was Mary Fairfax Somerville, the well-known scientist and mathematician. Somerville was living proof that girls could do maths and do it well. She had even written books on the subject, another thing girls were not supposed to do. Somerville was so impressed by Ada's sharp reasoning skills, she invited Ada and her mother to a party. Not just a party for dancing and dining, but for sharing ideas. The guests were scientists like Michael Faraday, who studied electromagnetism, and Charles Wheatstone, who invented a device to display three-dimensional images. But for Ada, the one who mattered most was Charles Babbage. He was a famous mathematician and inventor, just like Ada wanted to be. Though she was only 17 and Babbage 41, Ada spoke about math with a precision and understanding that impressed him. So much so that Babbage invited her to visit his laboratory. Ada Byron Lovelace and the Thinking Machine, Part 3 Ada brought her journals to, Bab to show Babbage her own experiments and inventions. Their tea grew cold as they talked about their love of machines and mathematics. Babbage didn't see her as simply a young girl. He treated her like the fellow mathematician and inventor she already was. Before, numbers had been Ada's only friends. Now Babbage was a friend too. Babbage showed Ada his difference engine, a revolutionary mechanical calculator. He knew Ada would understand how his extraordinary invention worked. Ada did more than understand. She couldn't wait to see the difference engine in action. She chose to have the machine solve a simple problem, one she could easily do in her head, 15 times 12. Reaching inside the machine, Ada rotated the metal columns under the numbers 15, uh, sorry, uh, reaching inside the machine, Ada rotated the metal columns until the numbers 15 and 12 appeared. With a crank of the handle, she powered the calculator. Gears clicked and turned. Cylinders pumped up and down. Small hammers clanked as the numbers spiralled upward, guiding the machine to the correct solution. After a few turns of the handle, the answer appeared in the final column, 180. It was right! Babbage told Ada he had designed an even more powerful device, a mechanical computer. His analytical engine would solve harder problems by working through them step by step. He could even make decisions, it could even make decisions all by itself, a true thinking machine. The only trouble was, Babbage hadn't actually built it. Ada carried home a stack of Babbage's lab books, 30 in all, filled with his notes about the analytical engine. 
Back in her room, she studied the technical descriptions and pored over the diagrams. Ada quickly realised that without instructions, the analytical engine would be a useless pile of metal parts. It needed numbers to make it work. Her numbers. Her friends. Ada decided to create an algorithm, a set of mathematical instructions for the analytical engine. The machine could follow these instructions and solve a complex math problem, one difficult to figure out by hand. She worked for months revising her instructions. Countless lines of numbers and symbols poured into the journal pages. After checking and rechecking her algorithm through the night, Ada finally laid down her pen. She hadn't found any errors. The world's first computer program was complete. The gears of Ada's mind whirled with, po with possibilities for future inventions, all controlled by computing machines. She imagined computers would someday design powerful flying machines and majestic sailing ships. They would draw pictures and compose music, and they would play games and help with schoolwork. Because Babbage never finished building the analytical engine, Ada never got to see her program run. But the influence of her work lives on. More than 100 years before the invention of the modern computer, Ada had glimpsed the future that had, and had created a new profession, computer programming. Ada couldn't know that one day a computer language would be named after her, Ada, and one of Ada's uses? To guide modern flying machines. The girl who needed crutches ended up flying after all. There are all sorts of fascinating things to learn about the Earth family, according to Dr. Zagel, the great green alien schoolteacher. Families come in all shapes and sizes. Some are smelly, some eat worms for supper, and some put their fangs in, gl in a glass before they go to bed. We're about to join Dr. Zagel and the thing that just fell off my windowsill as he teaches his pupils some amazing facts about these wonderful creatures families. Dr. Zagel's book of Earth Relations, translated into human by Jean Willis, pictures by Tony Ross. <clears throat> Good morning class. Today we are going to learn about the Earth family. An Earth family is a collection of Earthlings who belong to each other whether they like it or not. They are many different ages, from brand new to antique. They have identical ear flaps and snot shapes. Our family begins with our mummy earthling and daddy earthling and one earthlet. The number of relatives in an earth family is always larger than the number of chairs at Christmas time. Our family row begins with two earthlets called Bother and Salka. Bother earthlets are smelly, sticky and dangerous. Never look in their pockets. For supper, they eat wiggly worms. Salka earthlets are sly and sneaky and can be recognized by their piercing shrieks. To make them do this, Drop a webby eight legs down their frillies. They squirt many gallons of water from their two eyes. 
Here are auntie and uncle earthling. When they come to visit, the earthlets must frisk them at the front doorstep for expensive gifts. The uncle earthling is forced to crawl about on all fours like a horsey. Everybody has to play a game called Be Quiet, We Are Talking. The winner is the last one to fall asleep. Here are some phrases, class, that I would like you to learn. Gosh, is that the time we really must be going? Er, tosh, we really must be rowing. Posh, posh, is that the lime? Eh, we really must be going. Pish, we must wash frillies. All right, class. These are Grandpa and Grandma Earthling. They were born on planet Earth at the same time as Tyrannosaurus Rex. They are made from soft, crumpled material. The Grandma Earthling grows fruit and flowers in her hat. At night, she puts pink hedgehogs in her fur. The Grandpa Earthling puts his fangs in a glass. Earthlets and ancient earthlings behave in the same way. Here they all are at a bread-throwing competition. The winner is the one who hits the most ducks without falling in. The most popular game is called Where Did I Put My Glasses? This is something the whole family can enjoy. That is the end of today's lesson. Put your disguises on quickly. Matron has asked kindly Matron has kindly arranged for us to meet a real earth family. Have you got your wedding invitations? We will be landing at Buckingham Palace in five seconds. If you have any questions about uh, some of the things that Dr. Zagel was maybe referring to in the pictures, send us a call in and we'll try and answer that for you. And now for one of Tycho's favourites, Whistle Up the Chimney by Nan Hunt and pictures by Craig Smith. Mrs. Millie Mack lived by herself in a little white house in a big garden. Her husband was dead and her children grown up and married. In the spring, Mrs. Millie Mack planted vegetables, talked to the flowers and enjoyed the warm sunshine. In summer, she weeded and watered, picked flowers and vegetables, and made delicious raspberry jam. In autumn, she preserved fruit and made jellies and jams, pickles and chutneys, relishes, <coughs> relishes and sauces, until her pantry shelves were full. In winter, she sat knitting beside the fire, listening to the flames going crickle-crackle. Sometimes her children came for a visit and brought the grandchildren to see her. Mother, they say, this place is too big. Why not sell it and buy a cosy unit? Oh, no, thank you, Mrs. Mrs. Millie Mack said. Winter wouldn't be the same if I couldn't listen to the flames go crickle-crackle. When winter came, she waited for the truck to bring the heavy wood she had ordered. It came in funny shapes. There were long skinny bits, short thick bits, broken jagged planks, worn-out sleepers, and half a door. That's a funny thing. 
Mrs. Millie Mac said. Yes, laughed the man. <laughs> this is old railway wooden. That's half a door from a bogey louver. When he said that, the most delicious tingle ran up Mrs. Millie Mac's spine. Oh, really? she said, and was so busy shivering, she forgot to ask what a bogey louver was. On the first cold evening, Mrs. Millie Mac knelt down on the hearth, on the hearth rug to set and set a match to the fire. She listened to the flames going crickle-crackle, got out her knitting, and settled down to enjoy the winter. Then she threw on the fire a piece of the half-door from a bogey louver and waited to hear the fire, fire crickle-crackle again. But it didn't. It went, Biddy dum, biddy dee, biddy dum, biddy dee, clickety clack, clickety clack, shung, 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 whoosh! There was a smell of an old steam train smoke at the far off, coming closer whistle of the chimney, and out rushed an express train that disappeared down the hall, through the door, and away into the night. Mrs. Millie Mac got so excited. She dropped three stitches and knitted seven pearls in a plain row. Whistle Up the Chimney, Part 2 The next day, Mrs. Millie Mac set the fire with a large chunk of old sleeper and another piece of the half-door from a bogey louver. She took up her knitting and waited to hear the fire going crickle-crackle. Just as the fire did crickle, just at first, it did crickle-crackle. But soon it changed to a slow and ponderous, Ah, think ka ka ah, think ka can ah, think ka ka think ka kick ka, think ka aka, think ka kick ka, think ka clunk ka clunk ka clunk ka clunk ka, ah, A whistle sounded from up the chimney, and out groaned and clanked a mixed goods train with a guard wiping soot from his eyes as he was carried off down the hall, through the doorway, through the door, and away into the night. Mrs. Millie Mac got so excited, she pulled out a whole row of her knitting. On the third night, Mrs. Millie Mac could hardly wait to light the fire. She had set it very carefully with candle bark and pine cones next to the paper, then some thicker wood making a teepee over that. At the back, she put a piece of the half-door from a bogey louver. The fire blazed up cheerfully, crickling and crackling in the cones, in the bark, and then, yes, yes, it was. A very sedately and steadily it came. Chicka-hunka, 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 patum, Petit, patum, petit, vroom, 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 awa, 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 awa. From far up the chimney came a whistle that was not quite a snort and not quite a scream, and out trundled a four-coach all-stations passenger train. It slowed down as it came out into the room, and Mrs. Millie Back thought it would stop, but it didn't. 
she just had time to wave to the children sitting with their faces pressed against the windows before it swayed up the hall, through the door, and away into the night. Mrs. Millie Mack got so excited, she threw her knitting up into the air and where it caught on the lampshade. Mrs. Millie Mack didn't care. Who'd bother with knit one pearl to knit three together, she shouted. I'm going to be a train watcher this winter. Twice a week, the express roared out into the room, down the hall, through the door, and away into the night. Three times a week, the mixed goods dragged its freight out into the room, through the door, down the hall, and away into the night. Every other day, except Thursdays and public holidays, the all-stations passenger moved sedately out into the room, down the hall, through the door, and away into the night. It was the most exciting winter Mrs. Millie Mack had ever had, and she never did find out what a bogey louver was. If you would like to help us find out what a bogey louver was or is, please do call in and give us your thoughts or your Googling results. Um, and if you would like to know but can't be bothered Googling, our family may have already Googled the answer. So uh, if you ask, we shall provide, but are very happy for contributions. And now another Roald Dahl revolting rhyme favourite, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, illustrated by Quentin Blake. This famous wicked little tale should never have been put on sale. It is a mystery to me why loving parents cannot see that this is actually a book about a brazen little crook. Had I the chance, I wouldn't fail to clap young Goldilocks in jail. Now just imagine how you'd feel if you had cooked a lovely meal, delicious porridge, steaming hot, fresh coffee in the coffee pot, with maybe toast and marmalade, the table beautifully laid, one place for you and one for Dad, another for your little lad. Then Dad cries, Golly Joss, gosh gee whiz, oh cripes how hot this porridge is. Oh, let's take a walk along the street until it's cold enough to eat. He adds, an early morning stroll is good for people on the whole. It makes your appetite improve and uh, it also helps your bowels to move. No proper wife would dare to question such, such a sensible suggestion. Above all, not at breakfast time, when men are seldom at their prime. No sooner are you down the road than Goldilocks, that little toad, that nosy, thieving little louse, comes sneaking into your empty house. She looks around, she quickly notes three bowls brimful of porridge oats, and while still standing there on her feet, she grabs a spoon and starts to eat. I say again, how would you feel if you had made this lovely meal and some delinquent little tot broke in and gobbled up the lot. But wait, that's not the worst of it. Now comes the most distressing bit. You are, of course, a house-proud wife, and all your happy married life you have collected lovely things, like gilded cherubs wearing wings and furniture from Chippendale, 
bought at some famous auction sale. But your most prize, your most special, valued treasure, is one small children's. Oh, sorry. But your most special, valued treasure, the piece that gives you endless pleasure, is one small children's dining chair, Elizabethan, very rare. It is, in fact, your joy and pride passed down to you on Grandma's side. But Goldilocks, like many freaks, does not appreciate antiques. She doesn't care. She doesn't mind. And now she plonks her fat behind upon this dainty, precious chair, and crunch, it busts beyond repair. A nice girl would at once exclaim, "Oh dear! Oh heavens! What a shame!" Not Goldie. She begins to swear. She bellows, "What a lousy chair! It uses and uses one disgusting word that luckily you've never heard. I dare not write it, even hint it. Nobody would even print it. You'd think by now this little skunk would have the sense to do a bunk, but no. I very much regret she hasn't nearly finished yet." Goldilocks and the Three Bears by Roldal, Part Two. Deciding that she would like a rest, she says, "Let's see which bed is best." Upstairs she goes and tries all three. Here comes the next catastrophe. Most educated people choose to rid themselves of socks and shoes before they clamber into bed, but Goldie didn't give a shred. Her filthy shoes were thick with grime and mud and mush and slush and slime. Worse still, upon the heel of one was something that a dog had done. I say once more, what would you think if all this horrid dirt and stink was smeared upon your rider down by by this revolting little clown? Clown. The famous story has no clues to show the girl removed her shoes. Oh, what a tale of crime on crime! Let's check it for a second time. Crime one: the prosecution's case. She breaks and enters someone's place. Crime two: the prosecutor notes she steals one bowl of porridged oats. Crime three: she breaks a precious chair belonging to the baby bear. Crime four: she smears each spotless sheet with filthy messes from her feet. A judge would say without a blink. Ten years hard labour in the clink, but in the book, as you will see, the little beast gets off scot-free, while tiny children near and far shout, "Goody goo, hooray, hurrah!" Poor darling Goldilocks, they say. Thank goodness that she got away. Myself, I think I'd rather send young Goldilocks to a sticky end. Oh, Daddy! cried Baby Bear. My porridge is gone. It isn't fair. Then go upstairs," Big Bear said. "Your porridge is upon the bed, but as it's inside Mademoiselle, you'll have to eat her up as well."